everyone, and thanks for tuning into the show. I'm missing my partner this week as he had other family commitments, so I'm going to go it alone. We have a great interview today with Becky Passmore, former computer examiner for the FBI. It's going to be great, but first I thought I'd start the show with a question I've been asked several times in the last couple of weeks. Some of my family and friends have asked me why I wanted to start a podcast. Is it for the money? Well, it's certainly not about the money. At least I don't think so. Heck, I don't even know how many viewers I need to start making any money. I guess I basically have three reasons for starting the podcast. The first reason is that over the years, I've seen computer forensics play a large role in solving all kinds of crimes. Some of these cases are absolutely fascinating. The examiners who are doing the work go to a lot of training classes and in many cases take yearly proficiency tests. I just really wanted to share some of those stories with you. The second reason for the podcast is to inform the audience of the complexity of some of these examinations. Sometimes the evidence is in readable format and is sitting in the documents folder, nice and easy. But other times the evidence is encoded or encrypted. It may just be in a non-readable format. It may reside in an allocated space or temporary memory. A simple thing like reading the creation date of a file or internet history entry is not so simple if you don't know that timestamps come in several different formats that aren't human readable. There are some really good stories surrounding those examinations. And my last reason for starting this podcast comes from another podcast that I really enjoyed listening to about four years ago. That podcast was called Cyberspeak. The hosts were Ovi Carroll and Brett Padres, and I really enjoyed it. The show covered timely computer-related news, and they always interviewed an interesting guest. I also really liked the on-air relationship they had. I speak with Ovi from time to time, and he once told me he really enjoyed doing the podcast, but it just became too much with his regular 9-to-5 job and family obligations. While our podcast won't be exactly like Cyberspeak, I hope we share some of the same audience. What's new in the news today? OpenText, a Canadian company that develops and sells enterprise information management software, had their Enfuse conference last week. A big portion of the conference focused on Encase, a computer forensic software package. There was concern that when OpenText acquired Guidance Software, the creators of Encase, in 2017, that the software would not be supported. Those fears were laid to rest last week when version 21.4 was released with several new features. OpenText also shared future quarterly plans for the software through 2022. A 22-year-old Decatur, Georgia man has been sentenced to prison for producing child pornography and cyber-stalking two teenage girls he met online. Between May 2017 and November 2018, Emmanuel Gray targeted at least two teenage girls who he had met online through various social media apps, including Kik and Snapchat. After the girls broke off communications with him, Gray coerced them into sending sexually explicit photos and videos and then retaliated against them when they refused to send him more. Gray was sentenced by U.S. District Judge Steve C. Jones to 20 years in prison. He was charged with two counts of cyberstalking, two counts of producing child pornography, and one count of possession of child pornography. An indictment unsealed this month charges Yaroslav Vasinsky, 22, a Ukrainian national with conducting ransomware attacks against multiple victims, including the July 2021 attack against Kaseya, a multinational information technology software company. 
The department also announced today the seizure of $6.1 million in funds traceable to alleged ransomware payments received by Yevgeny Polyanin, a Russian national who was also charged with conducting Sodanokibi rebel ransomware attacks against multiple victims, including businesses and government entities in Texas in 2019. According to the indictments, Vasinsky and Polyanin accessed the internal computer networks of several victim companies and deployed Sodanokibi rebel ransomware to encrypt the data on the computers of victim companies. If convicted of all counts, each faces a maximum penalty of 115 and 145 years in prison, respectively. A Rogersville, Missouri man has been indicted by a federal grand jury for the sexual exploitation of three child victims. Jake Ethan Patterson, 26, was charged in a four-count indictment returned by a federal grand jury in Springfield, Missouri, on November 17th. According to an affidavit in support of the original criminal complaint, the investigation began in June 2021 when Canadian law enforcement authorities seized two cell phones belonging to a citizen of Canada. Investigators found Snapchat conversations with Patterson, who was sharing images and videos of child pornography. There were multiple pornographic images and videos of the three child victims. The affidavit says two of whom were approximately three to five years old and one who was approximately 12 years old. Patterson has been detained in federal custody since his arrest on the complaint. Okay, well, our guest tonight is Becky Passmore. Becky holds a master's degree in digital forensics and cyber investigations. She currently works as a cyber investigator in digital forensics and incident response with Kroll Incorporated. She has over 17 years of investigative skills as a senior digital forensic examiner with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Becky has also led a variety of complex digital investigations, including technical analysis for national security, insider threats, internet fraud, child exploitation, terrorism, and public corruption. Becky has provided expert testimony in cases involving computer forensics, and she teaches two courses, Digital Forensics and Introduction to Cybersecurity at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. Additionally, she holds the GCFE, GASF, Net Plus, and A Plus certifications. Wow, Becky, that is a heck of a resume. I know you're going to share a few stories with us tonight, but I hope you don't mind if I ask a few questions as well. Would that be okay? Yes, and thank you for having me, Mark. My pleasure. I think the audience is really going to love what you have to say tonight. So you were performing computer forensic work at the FBI, and now you're doing similar work for Kroll. What's so interesting about computer forensics? What I find so interesting about computer forensics is if you grew up liking puzzles and math and putting things together, the process of trying to find the needle in the haystack, the threat hunting, the putting it all together, the knowing a little bit of information and discovering more information throughout the process, the interaction with the victims or the interaction with the subject, the interaction with the investigators, the prosecutors, and with Kroll, now it's just a whole big team of interaction with other individuals. And you work as a team, trying to find that evidence and put it all together. And it just makes the field of digital forensics a fascinating, just a fascinating field to work in. And I always empower my students to take my enthusiasm and my passion for this career 
and generate how they feel in what they're going to do in the future and if this is an area that they find interesting to pursue it. Now this is highly technical work. Would you agree? I, I would agree it's highly technical work, but I also would say that you can teach people to be able to communicate it in a fashion where a person with no technical knowledge can understand what you're doing. And I think that would be the big trick in doing so as well, correct? Dumbing it down so maybe a jury could understand a very technical uh, topic. Correct. And teaching people to do that as well as practicing it yourself helps you and the person you're trying to explain something to understand that process. Right. And working for the FBI for 17 years, I assume from some of the stories you're going to tell us, I'm sure it's accurate, that a lot of the work you did helped put very bad people in jail. I would agree with that. Doing what we do and how we do it also kept people from being indicted or receiving charges because digital forensics is black and white. It's either there or it's not there. And it's either that person or it's not that person and once you're able to bring it all together then you're able to help the investigation move along so i would say that yes we did put some very very bad people in jail and we also prevented cases going astray because of the digital forensics that's a very good point you make, Becky, because uh, digital forensics, like you say, it's the facts are the facts. So when you're working these cases, you're not necessarily going in there saying, I have a guilty person. I'm just going to find the stuff that makes him guilty. You're looking for that evidence that proves guilt or innocence. And I know in two of the cases I had over my 20 years doing it, that there were actually two cases back to back in the same year where they thought it was one person and it wasn't. And the computer forensics bore that out. So that's a very good point you make. I told a detective one time when he wanted to focus on a person as opposed to the evidence. I follow the evidence. I don't follow the interviews. Very good. That's a very good point you made. I'm glad you made it. So in your new position at Kroll, Becky, you work from home. Is that right? I do. I work from home. Wow. Well, after working in the office for so many years, has that change been difficult to adjust to? At first, it was uh, extremely difficult to adjust to in the sense that when you're at home, you have household activities that you do, as well as now you have an office in your house. My struggle at the beginning was I love my job so much, all I wanted to do was stay in my office. It was very hard for me to find the time to step out of the office as opposed to not working. And so in the beginning, it was... It was new, it was an adjustment, but I think I have a very good work-life balance now with my office being here in my house, but also my husband and my dogs. Is it difficult not working side-by-side side with uh, the other people that work at Kroll, or do you guys have regular meetings online? I would say that it is not difficult working side-by-side uh, side because we constantly are having meetings as teams or we're constantly meeting on case update information. We have a channel where we're constantly direct messaging, asking questions, setting up meetings to talk about the case. 
I feel like I'm working right next to the person I was working with in the office just through the computer as opposed to person to person. Good, good. Well, is the work you do at Kroll different than the work you did at the FBI or is it pretty much the same thing? So the work I do for Kroll and the work I did at the FBI is digital forensics and it is somewhat going to be the same thing. You're looking for artifacts that help determine the investigation. But the work I did at the FBI was different in the sense that I did a lot of different areas of forensics, mobile forensics, vehicle forensics, the windows forensics, just the different levels of forensics going out and actually doing the on-site searches and collection and preservation, identification of evidence, as opposed to now, the evidence is on the network and we are mostly analyzing data off of a network. So I'm still looking for the same digital forensic artifacts. I'm just looking at the case workflow different as opposed to when I was in an office and I was the one identifying the evidence, collecting the evidence, preserving the evidence, examining the evidence, reporting on the evidence, and meeting with investigators and prosecutors. Now, the evidence is available for us, and what we do is meet and work together as a team, go through all the information, determine what the outcome of the results should be. And so it is different, but in the end, it's the same because digital forensics is artifacts. Would you say that Kroll is more uh, live network forensics as opposed to what you did in the FBI, which is more dead box forensics? Is that a fair? Yeah, that's a fair assessment. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, historically, computer forensics has been dominated by men. Do you see that changing these days? Absolutely. I do, and I encourage women to get into this field. And I can tell you from starting in digital forensics uh, 17 years ago and being many, many times the only woman in the room and having to prove myself as a woman, I have seen the changes come about with women in technology, women in computer forensics, and it is fascinating. That's awesome. Well, what kind of advice would you give a woman who wanted to get into forensics today? I would tell them that it is a fun and fascinating, rewarding and enthusiastic career and to pursue it with the utmost passion you can find because you will receive some of the best rewards from conducting digital forensic examinations. Is there a, is there a large learning curve to digital forensics? I say that any career has a large learning curve. It's whether or not you have the compassion and the dedication to learn it. So I would say that if you're interested in that threat hunting, that puzzle making, that process to find that a needle in the haystack, that this would be the field for anyone, a man or a woman. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, what are the, some of the major changes you've seen since entering this field over 16 years ago? It's changed a lot, right? When I started, and many people can understand, when 
when I started, we were looking at data on floppy disks, which was very, very small data on a little bitty. We would have to make that destruction, and it would be just like a little piece of tape, round disk tape that looked like it couldn't store anything, but it did. It stored a lot of data for as small as it was. And so over time, I've seen just how the computers have evolved, you know, from the size of this data storage, anywhere from as small as 128 megabytes, all the way up to eight terabyte hard drive storage capacity. Just recently for school, I purchased some four terabyte hard drives. And so it's just the data storage has over time just gotten larger, which gives the ability for more data to be stored and the cloud environment and all of the different intricacies of how data is stored, how data is received, how data is collected. And over time, it has just gone from very small to extremely large. And as I stated, when working for the FBI, every case worked in law enforcement has some form of digital forensics because we're all connected. We're all extremely connected with our devices, whether it be our mobile phone device, our tablets, our computers, our desktops, our TVs, our gaming stations, our video recordings, everything is connected. Well, you made a good point there. I really liked when you said that when we say computer forensic analysis or computer crimes, we don't mean a computer that there's a crime attached to. It could be any kind of crime where there is a computer or mobile phone nexus. Is that right? That's correct. That's right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, now just kind of a last question here. I know you were an instructor with the FBI. Is that right? That is correct. Tell me about that. What, what was that like? So again, I'm so enthusiastic and energetic about it. I had the opportunity to become an instructor teaching other new examiners how to do this job. And again, there's the technical side of it, the learning curve, the process, the workflow, the different avenues that computer forensics, digital forensics can take. But I think as an instructor, if you have the compassion to share your love for your job, it energizes others to want to do something similar. Gotcha. Those are great answers. I'm glad I took the time to ask you those. But now I'd kind of like to move into some of the uh, case studies and the stories you've got from your career. First one I'd like you to talk about involved a mobile phone case and recovering some deleted text messages. Could you kind of give us a rundown on that and what you did in that case? So in this case, there was two cell phones and one cell phone was a BlackBerry and the other cell phone was a, a Nextel, more like a, a walkie-talkie type phone. And I received a call from the prosecuting attorney, assistant U.S. attorney on a Monday. They were scheduled to go to trial the very next Monday. And the statement he made was, I heard you know a little bit more about mobile forensics. Can you help me out? And I said, well, I, I could try. And it was not an FBI case. It was a Secret Service case. And I said, sure, I, I can try. And so he stated that I would get a search warrant with the Nextel phone. I would get a consent to search with the BlackBerry phone. And 
when I received those devices, I had a very short period of time just to find enough information for him to have the case continued because they were trying to determine his word against hers. There were two suspects then, a female and a male? There was a cooperating witness and there was a suspect. That's correct. And the cooperating witness's phone was received on consent and the subject's phone was received under a search warrant. Okay. So when I received the devices, the first thing I did was I attempted to do an extraction. And during my extraction, the next tell I could not utilize any of my forensic tools to get an extraction from that device. So I focused on the BlackBerry and I was able to get a, an extraction of the BlackBerry device. Looking at the BlackBerry extraction, it was flash memory or a NAND binary file. And so what I did there was you could see the parsed data within the forensic tool I was looking at. This case was about finding deleted text messages because it was his word against hers. She said he texts me all the time and he said he hardly texted her. And so they were trying to determine his word against hers. The phone records for him and the phone records for her had between 950 and 1,000 text messages between the two of them over a six-month period of time. Now, could you see those text messages when you looked at the extraction itself right off the bat? No, I could not. So when an extraction occurs and the data is parsed by the forensic tool, it puts it in, I call them buckets of data. And there's one labeled as SMS messages. And the SMS messages had 135 text messages, but none of the text messages were between the cooperating witness and the suspect. So I then decided to pull up an advanced search function within the forensic tool. And then I conducted an Unicode and an ASCII search just for his phone number. So by ASCII, you mean basically what we would be concerned with today is how you look. You see a sentence in a newspaper, you see a sentence, that's the same type of ASCII search you're looking for. Unicode, you're talking about larger character sets. So foreign countries use Unicode because it takes more hexadecimal characters to make one letter than it does here in the U.S. It takes two hexadecimal in the U.S. to make one letter. It takes four in other countries because their writing is so complex. So Unicode actually is like having a period in between each letter. So Mark would be M period, A period, R period, K period. And that's a Unicode search and it's different than the ASCII search. Is that right? That is right. That is exactly right. And a, a great analogy of how it's explained. So when I conducted the search just for the phone number, I received over 500 hits between that phone and his phone number. So I just received over 500 hits. So I had to then reduce that down because within mobile devices, there is this term called wear leveling. Wear leveling is process where the data is repeated. It's not deleted. 
because of the way it's stored on that flash memory. And so you have duplicates of text messages. So once I filtered out the duplicates, I produced 180 hits of the text messages between the two phones. And reviewing it in hex, you have all the content of the date and time is stored in a numerical number. The true and false means send and receive. I had to break that down and put it in a spreadsheet and start to decode all the information. Using a program called Decode, I was able to identify the date and time of each text message sent. And once I was able to determine the date and time of those text messages sent, the phone records were provided and a comparison was made. So what I understand you to say, and I want you to explain to the audience, is when you said you saw dates and times, you had to decode them. You saw dates and times not like looking at a simple, it's 3-19 of 1995. It was some type of a date and time field that you had to decode manually? That's correct. So when so a lot of work. Uh, correct. Sweeping it out of hex, it's all numbers. So each text message had a date and time that was sent or received. And that date and time was stored in Unix millisecond. Decode that random number of characters into a date and time of November the 15th, 2016. Okay, so you've got these text messages that you couldn't see at all logically when you looked at the phone's extraction, but doing the, the keyword search for Unicode and ASCII, you're actually able to find 500 of them, realizing that you've got some duplicate. Then you set up a filter, you filter out them, you get 180 messages, and this is just between your suspect and your cooperating witness, correct? That is correct. So, Only looking at text messages between those two. And so at this point now, the goal is to show if there's a crime there. What did you do from there? So what I did was, and it was quite interesting how the text was defined, because all I saw was a letter A or K and five random numbers, 24620, 24740. So it would either be A26420 or K27470, something like that. And to me, it wasn't much information, but when I contacted the prosecuting attorney, and let him know what I had found and recovered, it was basically hitting the jackpot for him. Because the content of those text messages, it was the weight of a truck and what account that weight was being assigned to. And so this case involved the two of them conspiring to commit fraudulent activity in overcharging for the weight of trucks on a truck stop. And the fraudulent activity, there was an account set up by the suspect that was a fraudulent account, and there was a legitimate account. And over a certain period of time, I want to say it was less than a year, there was $459,000 plus dollars that was fraudulently collected by the suspect and the cooperating witness. Wow, that's fascinating. Now, did your suspect plead or did he end up going to court? And if so, do you know what kind of time he got? 
the suspect did not plea. I actually had to spend about two months putting all of the information together for the prosecuting attorney and preparing for court to testify. And the suspect represented himself. So he was the one asking me questions about the case and the information. And in the end, the cooperating witness pled and received probation for 10 months. And the suspect chose to go to court and a trial was found guilty and received 10 years in prison. But in the end, the part that's so fascinating about this case was it was his word against hers until the content of those conversations was revealed by recovering those deleted text messages. That's fantastic. That's really good work too and very difficult. I've done mobile phone forensics like you have for a number of years and a lot of times we're only able to get what's logically viewable on the phone. So for you and able to do a keyword search and in Unicode and ASCII and find that data that was there, this was a physical image, not a logical image, right? That is correct. That was a physical image of that device. Mm-hmm. Right, which is always going to give us a little bit more, especially in those early days before encryption really sets in with the Apples and the Androids these days. So that's a great story. Well, I was hoping to fit in another story or two from Becky, but I want most of our podcasts to stay in the 30 to 40 minute range. Maybe if we're lucky, she'll come back again in the future to share some more. That's our show for today, everyone. If you have questions or comments, send us an email at computercrimechronicles at gmail.com. You all have a good week, and thanks for tuning in.